Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and I'm very pleased today to have my second guest that I've had for the entire podcast. I'm not a professional interviewer, but I'm very excited to have this guest on because we're going to be talking about a book, and everybody knows that I love books a lot. And the book in question is The Odds of Texans from Slavery to the Texas Capitol, Personal Stories from Six Generations of One Family. And the author of this book started his career writing about Texas high school football, grew into being an award-winning newspaper reporter, and then launched himself into colorful and ambitious world Texas politics, and in time he became the speechwriter for Lieutenant Governor Governor of Texas Rick Perry. He's held trusted positions as counsel and consultation to not only the governor and state of the state of Texas, to Texas state senators, Texas Southern University in Houston, president he's written for, which is a historically black college down there. Also, you've been an advisor to public school superintendent, school board, mayor of Baltimore, and the Baltimore City Public Housing Commissioner. So, Melvin Edwards, thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Michael, for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you today. Now, you are a writer and always have been a writer, from what I gather. From the way you describe in the book, you could read and write before you even started kindergarten. Yes. I love, I've always loved the written word. It's, it's just a part of who I am. Um, some people do certain things. Words are a part of my being. All types of words, whether it's song lyrics or poems or later on newspaper articles, speeches, just words. I just love words. And, and it's, I don't remember a time when it wasn't like that. Were there any meaningful books that you still look back to from your childhood and growing up, high school and college years? Anything that's really special that grabbed you back then has been inspirational to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I can remember in seventh grade, we were assigned Jack London's book, The Call of the Wild, and we had to write a book report on it. And that book report made me decide writing was what I wanted to do. Um, I, I loved the book, but I loved sort of um, rehashing the book, reinterpreting what I had read, and just delving into the, the details. And I just never looked back. Once going through middle school and in high school, I had a beeline. I, I knew what I, I never had a secondary plan. 
I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I took in high school typing classes back when that was popular because I knew I needed to be able to type faster. And I was always the only boy in these classes. I, I, I took a shorthand class because I wanted to be able to interview people and write quickly so I could get all the details of what they were saying. So I was very purposeful because that's what I wanted to do. And I just didn't even think about doing anything else. So you had a focus and you, you knew right then you had the uh, strength of personality and confidence just to pursue it, the work ethic. Yeah. Well, that and I didn't think I had any other talent. <laughs> well, you know, I hear that. I hear that from songwriters. Well, if, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't have anything else. I wouldn't be, I'm not good at anything else. So. My, my other fallback plan was to be the center fielder for the Astros. And since they didn't call me at any point up to this day, I'm, I'm guessing they haven't really developed an interest yet. They still haven't so. tracked you down. You, I haven't given up yet. Your number got misplaced somewhere along the line. <laughs> you were born in Houston. You're a little bit, little bit older than me. Not much. I was born in North Texas. You were born down in Houston in Jefferson Davis Hospital in August 1966. That's correct. In the book, you tell a lot. The time of your birth, it was a very difficult time for especially your mother. Because she suffered some severe health problems right after that. She was, they were told her at the time, if I'm not remembering correctly, that she could have problems because of her age at that time. And she persevered and you ended up going to Albert Sidney Johnson. Those two names, Jefferson Davis and Albert Sidney Johnson. We're going to be talking about that in a little bit and junior high. And then you attended finally a non-Confederate James Madison high school. You went there, one of the founding fathers. And then you went and studied journalism in Arkansas at John Brown University, but it's not the John Brown that most people would associate with that name. No, it was the, not the John Brown, the, the slave rebellion guy from West Virginia. Right. It was um, the evangelist from the early part of the 20th century. Because when I saw that you'd gone there, I was like, that struck me as like, how did somebody get away with naming a, <laughs> naming a university after John Brown in Arkansas? But uh, I thought that was quite interesting. So you get out of college, you start writing, being a sports reporter, covering most of them, every sport, football, baseball, all that. I covered every sport, but being in Texas, football was the primary um, feature well, it's, of, it's, sports, of our sports section. And, and we and we run by football all year round, even when it was a football season. Well, it is the other national religion of, of Texas, football. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah it was, I, I covered high school football and would go to the games, write feature stories leading up to the games. During the off season, we'd do season previews. And when we weren't doing that, we would go to Houston and cover the professional sports, um, and which was like a day off. Right. Uh, so because going covering the Astros or covering the Oilers at the time or covering the Rockets, essentially the work is the background stuff is done for you. They've got their press office and they give you quotes and they give you stats. And you just, after the game, you just write the story about what you saw. Mm-hmm. Whereas high school, you had to write, you had to do all of it. You had to keep the stats. You had to know the players. You had to get to know the coaches' personalities. But I found a great benefit in covering baseball games, even though football was the number one sport we covered. I, I found great benefit in covering baseball games because every baseball is much more often and every game is different. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn how to be flexible and creative in the way you describe things. You can't, you can't just say, Johnny hit the ball to right center field five times a week. You have to be more creative. And I think that helped um, what came next with my career. Showing the flexibility and creativity from that definitely gave me some some opportunities that I wouldn't have foreseen going into starting my career. You went from being a sports reporter to a columnist, and that's what 
caught the attention that led you into the political arena. That is correct. I had a weekly column and I just, I had the freedom to write about any topic I wanted. And so I usually wrote about well, one of three things generally sports, politics, or pop culture. Mm-hmm. And generally pop culture was, was music. Right. That was, those were my passions. So the, the political columns got the attention of a state senator who, whose district included the home base for our newspaper and, and eventually met him and he invited me to come and work for him. And I never could have envisioned that in a million years, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, and I'm still friends with him to this day. That was 30 years ago. Well, 25 years ago. And I, I still communicate with him once, once a week, once every other week. Well, from the timeline then, just before you, made that transition, I guess, when you're still a columnist and reporter, that's about the time when you, 30 years ago or something like that, you got interested in genealogy and tracing your family history as best you could. What was a motivator for that? Well, I got married in 1989. I was very young, 22 years old, and I didn't know much about my family's history. I knew, I was going to know my parents, I knew my mother's parents, and I knew some things about her family. One or two generations in the past, not much. I knew almost nothing about my dad's family. Um, he never talked about his family, and when he did, it was not a positive. See, it, was, it wasn't positive. And I'm actually in the process now of researching them so I can do the second volume of this book about his side of the family. But my wife was from New England. Her brother was an amateur genealogist, and he had traced their family back probably 700 years. And I, I sort of felt a little jealousy, I guess. And I decided I would want, I wanted to find out more about my own family. And it took a while. It was bit by bit. And sometimes there would be gaps of months of not finding anything new. But when I didn't find anything new, I spent the time verifying what I already had. Because I had other family members, older family members, who were doing something similar. But I just wasn't convinced in the uh, level of their research. Uh, like they say, you can you can present some evidence to two or three different people, the exact same evidence, and they interpret it different ways. And that's that's sort of how I would describe it with them. Correct. Yeah. I and, and I and I had some training as an investigative reporter, so I thought I could dig a little bit deeper and 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 go on a level that they hadn't been trained to do. So that's that's what I did, and and I was pretty persistent. And occasionally I find a not really a mountain of stuff, but but I find a couple of texts that were encouraging and motivating, and I knew they were connected. And finally, about a year and a half ago, I went back to well, actually, after watching the series, um, like Who Do You Think You Are, and the one about finding your roots, I decided probably my best opportunity was to go back to the source. So I knew my mom's family had originated in Texas in Leon County mm-hmm. out in, in um, east central Texas between Houston and Dallas. And, and so I went there and there was a little genealogy society there that had a bunch of dusty old books. And my daughter and I went in and we just sat down and started digging through whatever we could find. And we found a couple of the bound census records, 1870 census record, the 1868 voters record. Yes. And the 1880 census and the 1890 tax roll. And those were the essentially the final pieces of what I needed. Because we had family stories and, mm-hmm. and I didn't know I didn't have a, a direct timeline. And and a lot I, 
I, I may have been too hard in, in describing my overdoses. A lot of the stuff they found was accurate. They just didn't have an accurate timeline. And I was able to put a timeline together based on this documentation. And before, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this and your listeners probably are, most of them, that before 1870, former slaves or current slaves, African Americans didn't have their names listed by name mm-hmm. in any official document. They would list, they were listed under the, their master's names as male, female, and their ages. And obviously you can't get very far no. with that type of information. No. And when you start out with your great, great, great grandfather, Isaac, he is actually even listed with the livestock. Correct. Which, and which uh, was not unusual. Not unusual. No. Okay. If my, Understanding is that this is about the same time that I started out when I was working in college doing research. This is when it was work. You, like you said, you had to go find the censors records and maybe in a bound volume, might be on microfilm, microfiche, or, you know, going through old newspapers. This is all like in the pre-digitization time. You know, Ancestry.com has made things so easy. Um, everybody thinks they're a genealogist, but you were doing it at a time when it wasn't just click and pull up a picture or a screen. You had to put in a, a lot of effort and work in, into that. There, there was a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. You'd have to <laughs> literally have to get a card and go to the card catalog mm-hmm. and look up where a book was on the shelf or which library it was uh, it was in. And then you'd have to go there. Um, I was fortunate that Houston had the second largest genealogy library in the country mm-hmm. after the one out of Salt Lake City. And that's part of Latter-day Saints religion um, genealogy is so it's, it's very important to them. But Houston had the next largest one, and I was able to find some details there. But part of the frustration in digging it up was in how slow it was to develop. Because census records, are they're only taken every 10 years, but they're also only released every 10 years mm-hmm. and retroactively. So at the time I started was 1988, so the earliest census records I would have had would have been about 1930 or 40. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to wait until 1990 to get the previous 10 years and then 2000 to get 10 years back. And finally going to the source and between that and, and ancestry and in my areas, I was able to speed up the process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and get, get copies of death records and, and marriage records and things like that. Did you have to deal with many of the, some of the records, some of the, I've gone through some old census data before, and it's the actual copy of the hand written, hand filled in report, you know, and it can be very difficult sometimes to figure out what the, the writing is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, thankfully online, especially Ancestry, um, they make the effort of essentially interpreting what they believe the writing says. So if you, you look at it and you can see the handwritten um, notations or entries, and then right next to it, there is a typed part of it. And obviously, they have to, they can only read what they see, and it right. may not be accurate. Right. And I mentioned in the book about Isaac Blayton, the first time he's mentioned in any official document, they misspelled his name. And that made it challenging because I'm thinking, is this the same guy? I, I don't know if this is the same guy. It took a while before I was convinced that it is the same guy. They just misspelled his name and, and they misspelled his wife's first name. And a couple of times, a couple of people, they got the ages wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what really convinced me that I had to trust my instincts more and I couldn't really trust the spelling 
was when I saw like 1930 uh, census. My mom, no, 1940. My mom was born in 32, so she would have been eight years old in 1940. And her name was misspelled so badly mm-hmm. that I, if it didn't have my grandparents' names and her siblings' names, I never could have guessed that's who they meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Her, and her name was Ella. Mm-hmm. E-L-L-A. And that seems like a name that would be pretty easy to spell, but <laughs> if there's, a, there's always a way to mess something up. <laughs> always. So you spend lots of time doing this. In the author's note at the beginning of the book, and the book is the Eyes of Texans from Slavery to the Texas Capital, Personal Stories from Six Generations of One Family. You published this November of 2020. It was in 2020, you explained in the author's note that you actually just tweeted about some of your genealogical research. And is that what inspired you to finally sit down and write the book? Well, I had already planned to write it, but not for publication. I, I planned mm-hmm. to write it as a family document for my children mm-hmm. so they could have a record for themselves. So if they ever became interested, they wouldn't have to go to the process that I did to accumulate it all. So um, my original thought was I'll just put this together in a readable format to make it easily understood for them. But I, I put together that series of tweets and the response was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I thought people are really interested in this. And so I decided I would write it for other people. Mm-hmm. And, and the first, per- um, I wrote it in a first person perspective because, um, I've always been interested in history, but most people who are not interested in history will easily tell you that it's because they don't want to remember names and dates and mm-hmm. places. And mm-hmm. It just becomes rote for them and not very interesting. So I, I wanted to write it in a way that was compelling and personal. And I, I wanted them to follow along and think about what was going on in the lives of the people whose stories they were reading. So it wasn't just about the people. It was the people. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really um, an interesting exercise for me because I had to really dig deep in my brain and think about this. And I lost a lot of sleep. I bet you did. Um, yeah. It was, it was really traumatic in some parts. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it actually sped up the process of me writing because I thought I got to write this thing faster. I'm never going to get any sleep. Right. And so I, my original goal when I started writing was to write 500 words a day. Mm-hmm. And, and after about a week of that, no sleep and writing, I started writing a thousand words a day mm-hmm. and then about two to three thousand words a day. So uh, the writing process was, was pretty quick. I, I wrote the whole book in about three and a half weeks. So it took me 30 plus years to gather all the information. And once I had it, it only took me three and a half weeks to, to put it in a book format. Well, I'm very happy that you did decide to write it for other people because the way you weaved in the context of the rest of things going on in the state and the rest of the country into the lives of your family members is it's just a, it's a perfect synthesis of that. And it's from the 1840s to present day, you really do a great job of bringing in every significant event or circumstance that was going on 
during that time period, all the way from, like I said, from your great, great, great grandfather being sold from Maryland mm-hmm. and sent to Texas. And he was, and, you know, very amazed that his wife was actually able to go with him when, when you got to that part of the story. Cause a lot of times yeah. that didn't happen. Now, later on, the family did get broken up. You've already answered my question about the, the, uh, how you decided to do the first person. I think that's pretty bold and, but you, you really carry it out really well. It's convincing how much work. Okay. You've all, you even say in the book, seventh grade Texas history, my seventh grade Texas history teacher and that, that class was very profound, had a great influence on me. And you even say in the book how important that was. So you've, you've been interested in history, of course. Um, how much extra research did you have to do for the book? Or was it just something you were already familiar with? I, I, I knew most of it. I, I just, I did some sort of verifying to double check because I didn't want to make a sloppy mistake and have somebody dismiss the whole story because I was lazy and didn't double check a, a date like with the, election of the compromise election of 1876 i didn't want to say 1875 or the uh, reconstruction era ending in the south in 1877 i didn't want to mess up the date because i figured that was really easy to go back and look at and and make sure i got it correct so stuff like that i I went up i I researched as i was writing uh, the price of land at the time the price of goods and services Mm -hmm. um, at the time and in that part of the state I was researching as I was writing, but the overall theme I, I've known for a long time because I've just always been a, interested in history. So, right. um, but I, I did have to do a little bit more digging into the uh, reconstruction era because it was something during most of my early adult years. I just, I just avoided it. It was just in my mind, it was too painful and too personal. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had to wait until I got a little bit older. To, to have the courage to go in and, and just lay it all out on the line and realize that this is what happened and this is not my family's shame. No. We shouldn't carry the shame for what was done to them. No. I carry the pride for what they did afterwards. That's um, the way they picked up the pieces and started over. And, and while it's discouraging in parts of the book and parts of my family's story that every generation simply had to start over again, there was no... Um, what you might call a generational wealth being developed. Every every generation had to start over again. But I was really encouraged by the perseverance and the fact that nobody gave up. And that's that's my family's legacy, I believe. Between that and forgiveness for what happened to them is is something that certainly um has influenced me and my personality and, and how I try to treat other people. That really comes through in the book, because to say that it was hard times is the understatement of the century. Well, let, let's go back first before we get into that. You, you you tell the story. You have first person point of view from Isaac Bladen and his wife, Elvira, and they travel. She was from Virginia. He was from Maryland. And uh, near uh, is a Bladensburg. Where the, where the, the big battle happened with James Madison there. And that's what opened up Washington DC to get set on fire. The, the failure of that battle. He was sold cross country. Uh, and 
ended up in Leon County, like you said, is like, would you call it lower East Texas? I guess it's down I forty five goes right through it. If anybody's driving yeah, from the I, Dallas Fort Worth, yeah, call it East Central. East Central. So it, it's sort of it's right. Centerville is is halfway between Houston and Dallas, and and it's on the eastern half of the shore. It's not officially East Texas, but it's eastern part of the state. Then the next narrator, if I'm remembering everything right, was the middle daughter of Isaac and Elvira, Louisa, the oldest daughter, daughter, Louisa. And then there was a son, William. William was her brother. Okay. And then another sister named America. Correct. Uh, Yeah. William, um, uh, Louisa, William, and America were the children of Isaac and Elvira. Right. So you tell her story. She, the, the devastation of what the family experienced during the Civil War was she was sold off to Louisiana and Isaac had to wait until 1865 to go bring her home. And are there any family stories that were related down about this or this, this creative imagining of, of what happened. Well, actually, it's a little bit of both. I, I had heard stories from childhood about what happened to her. And that's something to this day I haven't had the courage to dig deeper in. So right. I, I wrote it in a way that you could read between the lines and sort of imagine what happened to her. Because it was that part was just too devastating for me. And I I wanted the book to be uplifting for the most part. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted it to be my my goal is for it to be read by Texas history students, mm-hmm. and I I didn't want to traumatize. Them. No, no. Um, I, I don't feel like you've got to be graphic in the telling of the story to tell the story. I think people's imagination can generally get them where they need to go if you're a good enough writer. Mm-hmm. So I sort of left it. I wrote it in a way that you would have to read between the lines. Yeah. So the part the part that was a little bit of a creative interpretation was um, how he got to her. Because I don't know all the details. I do know that what the story I told was essentially true, but I don't know if it took a month, a year, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just don't know that level of detail. Mm-hmm. But but the fact that he went after his daughter and got her back is a hero's tale to me. And that's a story that I had to tell. I just couldn't, no matter how painful it was, I just couldn't leave that part, that part out. Right. Following Louisa, there was Walter. Uh, Louisa married a gentleman named Amos Jones. They had Walter Jones. Correct. And then. We had a child named Isaac. Isaac. Um, so she named after her dad. And then, then they had a daughter named Elmira. Mm-hmm. So just one letter different from her Elmira, mother. yeah. And I, I didn't realize how old Louisa was when she died. She, she was born in 1846, and she died in 1945. So um, she died in late 45, so it was after the end of World War II. So she was born before the Civil War and died after World War II. So she saw a lot. A lot, and, yes. <laughs> and my mother remembered her. And I, the story probably would have been easier to research if my parents had, were still around. But most of the stuff they told me was when I was a child. At that point, you know how kids are. They mm-hmm. sort of listen with one ear and, and distracted. And, but 
thankfully I have a, my brain tends to record things. Mm-hmm. You, you hear about photographic memory. I always say I have a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. That's sort of out, outdated now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Nobody uses a tape recorder anymore, <laughs> but, um, people tell me things and I see things and I can remember the details. I can remember what people are wearing. I can remember smells around scenarios. And so I had to sort of dig deep into my memory to recall all the stuff that my, my parents told me. And while my dad didn't tell me much about his family, he did tell me a lot about my mother's family. And we would go fishing down in Galveston a lot. Um, almost every weekend we would go fishing, we'd go to baseball games. And, and I was the youngest by a lot. My brother is the next youngest and he's 12 years older than I am. So I essentially grew up as an only child and I got one-on-one time with my dad all the time. And he was, he loved to tell stories. And so that's where I got most of the information I got, which was interesting because it wasn't about his family. It was about my mom's family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you waltered, then the, the Louisa Amos had Walter Jones, mm-hmm. Walter and Anna Thorne had, how do you pronounce it? Orlan, Orlean, or, Orlean, Orlean Jones. Yes. Yeah. That was my maternal your, grandfather. Your maternal grandfather. And right. of course your, your mother, Ella Jones right. Edwards. Correct. And that right. leads to yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, Walter was the first of the generation born after slavery. Mm-hmm. Although his older siblings were born as slaves, but they were too young to remember. And his wife died when she was pretty young, as did Louisa's husband, Amos. Um, Louisa was 27, I believe, 27, 28 when Amos died, and she never remarried. So she lived 71 years as a widow. Mm. And one thing I found out after the book came out and talking to other relatives was, when Walter's wife, Anna, died, Walter remarried on my mother's side of the family. So he ended up marrying my maternal grandmother's mother. Mm-hmm. I did not know that till very recently. Mm-hmm. That just seems bizarre to me. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they were older and they didn't have any kids, so there was no uncle, cousin, brother type of um, confusing dynamics going on there they were just i guess two older people who decided to keep each other company for the rest of their lives and that's that's what they did yeah one of the major things that you brought it up about louisa living through such a long time and lived through so much history i mean seriously she was alive when sam houston was alive sam houston met thomas jefferson and then you can just start doing the links. Well, if she was alive in after World War II, she could have met my dad when he was a little boy. You know, that's how close we are to these events and people. It's not a long time ago. It seems no. to us now because we are traveling so fast. Everything's so sped up, technology and all this. But we're not that far removed from all of these events. And then you do a really good job capturing really that. Are. All right, so one of the things I, I learned or, or realized when I was doing the research is 100 years, you, you generally consider a 100-year-old person very, very elderly. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing genealogy research, 100 years is the blink of an eye. Yes. And like Betty White just died recently, and she would have been 100 years old today. Right. She's older than Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. So he could theoretically still have been alive today if not for the assassin. True. Um, so the... 
time is compressed and we tend to, too many people tend to dismiss something that happened before their life lifespan or even early in their lifespan as no longer relevant. And, and I think that's just the wrong approach to take because all of history connects to other history, whether it's past or present. Very few things happen in isolation. There's new, nothing new under the sun. And when you got that continuum, it makes sense for you to learn about it and find out why it happened. Make sure it doesn't happen again. And what, what can you do about it? It's, it's just a hundred years just is not that much time. And, and that's something that's kept being reiterated the more I've researched. I, I agree. And you do capture, you capture so much with a really nice economy of words and choice of information. I mean, you go all the way back to the El Camino Real, uh, mention it and talk about how that's the route that Isaac followed to go to Louisiana. And that, that road itself, that route goes all the way back to the Spanish times in the 1600s and it even predates them because that would have been a trail that the Native Americans had followed beforehand. It's just a natural, perfect route. Right. But, but you bring it forward to the importance of that time period. Um, you, you talk about the Republic era, the Civil War. You talk about two really important things. I love the, the, where Isaac's talking about Abraham Lincoln was his president, even though Jefferson Davis was the president of the uh, Confederacy, but he always considered Lincoln his man. And, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation came and then it was not until the very important day of Juneteenth, 1865, June 19th, 1865, which is still an important, very important and getting, I think it's even getting more and more widespread and it's celebrated all across the country. Now that was a very important moment. Um, were there any stories passed down about that, that you remembered hearing the Juneteenth announcement and how it got well, spread? Yeah. And the, the one story that I think I conveyed in the book was, um, the disappointment and how, the news was intentionally withheld mm-hmm. from from Texas slaves because Texas was the furthest west mm-hmm. from D.C. So theoretically, they could say it took news longer to travel. It didn't take news that long to travel if Abraham Lincoln had been killed no. or, or other things like that. So if they wanted the news to travel faster, they certainly could have. So they, the disappointment about um, being held captive for two and a half years longer than the law required was was one of those situations that could easily have turned in turned bitter for those who went through it who experienced it but from everything i understand that's not what happened people isaac and elvira up until she died in the 1870s that they just kept moving forward they mm-hmm. just kept trying everything they had and isaac had the talent for being a blacksmith and was able to, to make a pretty good living from that and horses. He had an affinity for horses and blacksmithing. And he, he, at one point you said that your, your ancestors were farmers and cowboys. And that's another thing that's often got, doesn't get really told well in the story of the Texas in the West is that a lot of the earliest Texas cowboys were black men entrusted to take care of the cattle, the ones coming from the East. And then the other earliest cowboys would have been the Native Americans at the missions. They would be sent out and they took care of the, the cattle, you know. Um, yeah. those were the, they were the first cowboys. Yeah, the, the vaqueros too. Mm-hmm. The Mexican cowboys. Correct. So, exactly. Um, it was, it was a multicultural um, cowboy society and 
it, because of Hollywood, mm-hmm. generally tend to think of it as, as Roy Rogers and, and John Wayne. Right. Whereas it would much more likely, especially in Texas, much more likely to have been someone who wasn't white. Exactly. Who was, who was doing that front work. And my family's been participating. I don't, I don't know if it, uh, the younger ones because I haven't, I've lost contact with a lot because I haven't been a family reunion in quite a while. Mm-hmm. But I can remember when I was a kid, my two uncles would ride bulls in, in these mm-hmm. sort of neighborhood rodeos. Yeah. And they were, it, it didn't seem unusual to me at the time because it just, just was just something they did, but they were in their forties at the time. And I think really? Was really old to be riding a honking bull. <laughs> yeah, from the experience of guys that do that for yeah, <laughs> that's usually a if you're if you get into your thirties doing that you're you're pretty darn tough. <laughs> so if they're doing it in their forties, that that says something right there. Yeah, you you capture the story of how for a brief time a freedman's vote counted, and then we get to the sad story like you brought up earlier the the controversial election of eighteen seventy six and the Republican Party just basically made a deal and washed its hands of the South and their their responsibility and commitment to the freedmen. And that's when the Redeemers stepped up and started doing everything they could to erode any gains that had been made and basically to a second slavery, put them in a position where you can't vote. It's very hard to buy land. You could buy land, but it's very difficult. You are always going to be put in a state of debt, especially as a sharecropper. But people still persevered and you capture that. You keep saying, you keep sharing that. And that's one of the amazing stories and things that I keep finding in my research of other things. People find a way to persevere. And one of the things you say in the book is one of the, they say, well, it's faith and persevere and perseverance help is what kept them going despite all the hardship. I had a, I had a graduate professor one time say it's, he was all constantly, we were doing a class on reconstruction. He's like, to, I'm constantly amazed that we only had one big act of violence, one civil war, because we have had a peaceful transition of power, except for that one time. And the most, then of course, we're talking at a strange time in our history now, where not so, not so peaceful of a transition of power is, is the closest thing that we're, we would have been in our lives to something of that, that, that level. But the fact that the, the people have not taken up arms, you know, that's something he, he stressed to me. And it, it does. It, I think about that as we, as a society, we keep trying to move forward and do better. Yeah. You talk about taking up arms um, throughout Texas history and, and most of American history. The ones with the guns are the ones with the power. True. So while Texas culture has always included weapons and, and animals, um, those a lot of times were restricted for yes. more slaves. They, they just right. didn't have access to it because people knew that if they went, a, a former slave went to cast his vote and, and he was denied, then he could fight back. Without the arms, he essentially couldn't fight back. Yet there was always the you, you brought this up very well. Also, there's always then this white fear of the black man. Yes, and and, and that's that's a theme I wanted to recur. Um, there was no violent uprising. There was no um, extra 
um, jurisdictional request from African slaves to get a new, to get land handed to them other than right. what was promised and, and not to be given anything other than what they thought they were, or what they thought they earned as Americans. Of course, in the 1890s, the Supreme Court determined that former slaves were not mm-hmm. citizens of America. So that obviously complicated that process. And it took until the 1960s before we finally got voting rights and, and some civil rights legislation passed. But, um, it was without a way to fight back. The only means available was through legislation and it was just a very slow process. After the Civil War, we had Reconstruction. That was lightning fast and how fast everything changed and, and whites in the South just could not handle that. Right. And so they, they essentially, when they got the chance in 18, beginning in 1877, they just erased all the laws that were newly on the book and, and decided, well, we're going to go back to the way things were in the, what they would consider the good old days and keep people in their place by fear or by violence or the fear of violence. Exactly. They did that. And then they also started rewriting the history and trying to remove slavery as a cause for the civil war. You can see the flip flop. You go back and read some of the speeches and writings of people before the civil war, like Alexander Stevens, Jefferson Davis. But then afterwards they were, and these aren't, unintelligent men. These were guys that have extremely well-educated law degrees, all that. They knew how to spin an argument and they did that for a long time. And then you also bring up the whole thing about the, the statues being thrown up on the courthouse lawns. Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't heritage. It was, and we're still on top. You need to remember that we might've lost the war, but you're still being kept in your place. And don't forget that. And it's also very symbolic that they always put them on the court. The seat of justice is at the, the courthouse, and they always had the statues put there. Yes, and, and I mentioned you, mentioned, you said state of justice. I mentioned early in the book about the tree of tree justice. Tree of justice, yeah. That, that Isaac Blayton would have seen um, when he had to go to the Leon County Courthouse for any kind of official business. And I saw the tree myself when I went there. Oh, really? It's, it's pretty harrowing. It's, it's been trimmed back a lot of the years, but those are some pretty intimidating trees. And when you know that a man had been hung there the week before, mm-hmm. and um, that you're told that that's your fate if you get out of line, if you look at somebody the wrong way, if you get uppity, or however they define that, and that was always a very loose and very subjective definition. So you never really knew where the lines were. So you always had to, to tiptoe around in your own hometown. Mm-hmm. It, it had to be just an unnerving experience on a daily basis. It, it really had to have been. It is always a reminder there. We're actually recording this on Martin Luther King Day. I'm going to be releasing this beginning of February 4, uh, Black History Month, to mark as an episode for that. And it's, it's a fortunate timing. I was supposed to record with you a long time before, but lots of things happened and I couldn't do it. So it's kind of fortunate that we're actually talking about this on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day because you were born immediately after 
hundreds of years of struggle to get the vote back. It's kind of yeah. symbolic, you know, that we're actually talking about this, your family history, the life of Dr. King being remembered today. And you were born just, and I was not much past that. I mean, I grew up in the, about pretty much the same time period as you. And from, I remember from my childhood, things were still not, I don't, I'm not going to say they were right today, but they were very different growing up. I mean, I still remember, I grew up and went to elementary school in a town where the town was still segregated to who lived on which side of the railroad tracks. And I remember growing up and I was like, I always scratched my head and I'm like, why is this? That's, well, that's where one of my interests in history came from is how is this a thing, you know? I just, I just, I didn't want to bring that up. We're doing that for that. And, uh, do you have anything you want to comment about that? Yeah. You just brought up a lot of stuff and I'm thinking, all right, I got to try to remember all this stuff so I can. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, um, yeah. The, the Voting Rights Act of the mid sixties essentially went into effect in about August of 1965, which was exactly one year before I was born. Right. So, so my parents were in there. My mom was in, who was about 33 and my dad was 38. So they would have been voting for the first time. And too often, history doesn't tell the complete story. You, you talk about women's suffrage and the women um, gaining the right to vote in 19, 19, 1920. Yes. Those were only white women. Those right. were African-American women, and they didn't get the right to vote for another 45 years. And, and my mom was included in that. And I had a discussion on Twitter the other day about um, a guy was asking, what's the problem with requiring voter ID? Essentially, there's not a problem with re- with requiring voter ID. The problem is specific voter IDs. Like my mom couldn't vote until she was 33 years old, and she lived until she was 60. So for 27 years, she voted in every single election, whether it was uh, municipal, county, state, federal. She voted every election, but she never had a driver's license because she never learned to drive. Right. And so if there had been a law passed sometime in the 70s that said you had to provide a driver's license to vote. She would have been back where she was before 1965. She would have essentially had her voting rights uh, revoked because of that specific document. So, again, I, that's a little bit of a tangent there. But um, I don't have a problem with voter ID laws as long as they're broad enough to mm-hmm. allow people options. Right. So that that would be my response to it. And with um, Martin Luther King's life, um, he was born to the day two years after my dad. So my dad was born January 15, 1927. Martin Luther King was born January 15, 1929. So their, their lives, early lives parallel. So they were, obviously they didn't know each other, but they were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And, and talking about those things that happened in my dad's life and, and, and reading about stuff that happened in Martin Luther King's life, they, they were essentially the same. Uh, and King was much better educated and, uh, and much better off, but still, he faced all the same discrimination that for the people, as the people that he fought for. And one of the things that I want to emphasize is we talk about the compression of time, 100 years, not mm-hmm. very much. It wasn't even just generations that we were, that, that things were changing. Yes. It was within generations. Yes. Um, I was born in 66 and my older siblings were born in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And when they would go to visit our grandparents in Madisonville, the general store, they would have to go through the back door. 
Mm-hmm. So th- this isn't my parents' generation. This no. is my grandparents' generation. This is my siblings. Yes. And and by the time I came along, thankfully enough, it's changed, and I could go through the front door and not really have to think about it. But my my mom always, my parents always reminded me that I needed to be careful. Um, I always had to be respectful. Of course, that's what they expected all yes. the time anyway. Yeah. But I can remember clearly when I was about ten years old, um, I went. For the summer to my, to stay with my grandparents for a couple of weeks. And I had a, I had my dog and I took him downtown and I tied him up out in a little hitching post thing and went in the store. And this guy, I came outside and this adult white male was looking at the dog and, and, and he said, is this your dog? And I said, yeah, he is. And he said, I'd, I'd like to have him. I go, I'm not giving you my dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was pretty intimidating. There were no other adults around. And finally, I just sort of untied him and ran. Right. And thankfully, thankfully, he didn't chase me. Yeah, but yeah. That was that was pretty scarring. That been uh, horrific episode. Putting you through that, yeah, yeah. But stuff like that, I didn't put in the book intentionally. I I didn't want it to be. No, you a did. Bunch of downers. I I wanted I wanted it to be a story, um, family stories, and not entirely a history book. And I no. had a note on my computer that said, this is a book of family stories. It's a book of family stories, stories yes. Story. But that's the beauty of it. It, it, you were, it stays interesting. It makes it, it stays human through those personal stories. But it is also a perfect book for Texas history students to read. And because it's the history of Texans. You know, you're, I love what you write at the end of the book. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to read it or read it here. People go pick up copy up. It's, it's reasonably priced. You can get it from, uh, through Amazon. You can get a ebook version. You can get the paperback version. And I actually got the, after I got my copy, I also picked up the audio book version that you have. Which, how did you find that person to do that? Cause that, that's a, they did a really good job. I found this service online. It's also through Amazon because Amazon owns almost everything now. Yes. Um, yeah. they, they had bought, um, Audible recently. And so they have this format where, uh, voice actors list their profiles online and, and you submit a script and they submit, um, what do they call it? They they read the script and, and submit it back to you mm-hmm. fifteen minutes or so, and then you choose who you want to 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 do the audio. Or if you don't find anybody through that group, you sort of adjust the settings and, and find somebody different. And actually, that's what I did. The first time I didn't find anybody who I thought really fit, and then I adjusted the settings and and came across um, Stephen Gannett, who is a guy in, in Georgia, and I had never met him, and Obviously, it was a challenge for an adult man to play, to, to read the voices of men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't want it to be a stage play. I didn't want it to be a movie. It was just, right. you were just reading the story. And, and he did a great job. And I was, I was very pleased. I was, I chose him because I thought he sounded like I envisioned Isaac sounded. Mm-hmm. So he probably wouldn't have sounded like anybody else in the book. But to me, Isaac was a central character, and that's who I wanted to be featured. And I, and I thought he did a great job with that. It really was good. And that that part with Isaac, the, his love of of the land that comes through, 
the, his love of being in Texas that comes through that you share. And you know, like I said, people pick it up in the end. You end with a look to the future, the positivity and hope, you know, looking through your grandkids eyes, the possibilities open to them today are in such a short time period are ridiculously different. And it's a beautiful ending, uh, very passionately written. You love Texas. It comes through very clearly. Um, I just want to thank you again for writing it and for taking the time to talk with me about this. You know, in the, in the future, when somebody asks me, well, what's a good book to read about this time period? Well, just on Reconstruction itself and the horrors of that, I say go check out C. Van Woodward, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, or Henry Louis Gates, Stony the Road, uh, Reconstruction, White Supremacy, and the Rise of Jim Crow. That book blew me away because he focuses in that book about how media was used to shape the mentality of people into what it has become. And another good book is All God's Dangers, which is the life of a, a sharecropper named Nate Shaw that was written. Uh, a graduate student went and sat and found this gentleman and interviewed him. And it's a big fat book. It's a great book. I had to read it when I was in college and it was like, wow, this, this is a classic right here. But your book, because one, it's not that long. It's, it's not a huge commitment. It's 166 pages thereabouts, but you pack so much into it. You pack so much humanity into it and, and you, you can learn so much just from reading the family stories, which is a beautiful thing. Cause I've read, I've seen people's family histories and they are kind of a, unless you actually have a personal commitment or stake in it, it's not necessarily the most interesting reading, you know, but the way you went about doing it is just completely beautiful. And a really, uh, something I, I admire. Um, is there anything else you'd like to comment on regarding your book or any other topic at all? Yeah, uh, one thing you, you you touched on was my grandchildren. Yes. Today today is my oldest granddaughter's sixth birthday. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm looking at a picture of her on my desk when she was probably a month old, and she's we laid her on the star in the center of the rotunda at the Texas Capitol with the words Republic of Texas around her, and she's got on this onesie that wow. specifically made and it says Eighth Generation Texan. And I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person. I, sometimes the evidence doesn't seem to support that type of a mindset, but I, I just refuse to be anything else. I, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to hold grudges. I, right. I learned that from my mother and I just, I, I respect the, the lessons from my, from my parents and forefathers. But the, the outlook for my grandchildren is just so different. The, the chance of her growing up and becoming president, or actually, if they're not realistic, they're at least, there's at least a real possibility. And the chances of me growing up to be president probably were 1%. Right. The chances of my parents growing up to be president were negative. Right. And, and so we're making some progress. We still have a ways to go, but I'm, I'm convinced that if we can endure this time in history, mm. I, I think we'll be okay. I'm, despite my optimism, I'm, I'm a little bit shaky on my prospects for getting through the next yes. three to four years because people are just intentionally uninformed or misinformed. 
talk about the prospect of repeating history when you don't learn it. Mm-hmm. People are intentionally rewriting history like the daughters of the Confederacy did. And it's right in front of our faces. It's not yes. 150 years ago where you have to interpret some of it. You can see it for yourself. That's one of the reasons I started the podcast, because during a certain period of time, I'd be having conversations with people, and they'd be, again, proud, you know, I'm freedom of speech, freedom of thought, you be you, I'll be me, I want to have a civil conversation, don't start calling me names, don't start doing this, I won't, you won't stay on my good side, but don't make stuff up, because I was having conversations with people, and then if you brought up slavery, well, slavery was so long ago, you needed to kind of just drop it, don't you think? Yet, let me keep talking about why the South was so great and the Confederacy needs to be remembered. You don't get to do that, sir. Ma'am, no, no, ma'am. You don't get to say, forget about this, when it is the central, one of those main central lines and sins of our heritage is that you don't just throw it away, especially if you don't know the aftermath of the Civil War and all the wrongs that were done there. That's why it's important a book like yours, while still being positive, optimistic for the future, and you didn't beat everybody, you didn't beat the reader over the head with it. You just sold simple facts with an economy of words within these people's lives. You were capable of capturing Texas history and the history of America. You know, it's, it's, yeah, that's one of my big I, pet I peeves. I really appreciate those words. Thank you. Just last week, I was, um, accepted for membership into the Sons of the Republic of Texas. Oh, that's right. Yes. And, and that's, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes because from what I understand, I'm only the third descendant of a slave to ever be admitted into the, into the group. You have every I, right I to be there as anybody. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> um, I'm not sure I will, I will be ready for that kind of publicity. Right. But I, I, I think I'm up for the challenge and I, I think I know enough that I can debate people about it and without being harsh or accusatory or diminishing of their own family right. history. Right. Because you, the people you talk to today aren't responsible for what happened. No. 150, 100, 200 years ago. But they, essentially they could have benefited from it. Yes. Either directly or indirectly. Right. And, and it's foolish not to acknowledge that. You don't have to wallow in it. You don't have no. to be stuck in it, but you do need to acknowledge it. Right. Absolutely right. Melvin's voice sounds great, but he hasn't felt well this today. And I'm very grateful for you to, to stick it through here. We're over an, about a little bit over an hour now to the recording. And I, you know, I could probably pick your brain about working in Texas government, governor's office, all seeing the, how the, how the sausage gets made down in the oh, legal stuff. Yeah, you know, that, the, the Capitol building, I've only been to the Capitol building one time and I'm, I'm my daughter goes to UT and I'm going to make it a point. Well, I we haven't been able to get into the Capitol building for so long because of the, the things going on. It's one of my, my missions is next time I'm down and also visiting her is to hopefully get in and visit the building. You describe uh, all the little, this intricacies that you got to see every day working there. I could also talk to you about a number of other things. Music, uh, you bring up Lightning Hawkins in the book, uh, being a relative. Albert, Albert Collins. Yeah. Yeah. Albert Collins. Yep. Um, I'm a huge music fan, uh, especially, you know, if it wasn't for Lightning Hopkins, Texas music pro- probably would not have had a Towns Van Zandt or a Guy Clark 
um, because they were such huge fans of him, they would just follow him around, <laughs> you know, and just trying to learn from him. And, you know, if you listen to like, especially Towns playing live, Towns Van Zandt playing live, he play, he tries to play just like Lightning. He tries to. I don't know if anybody can, but, uh, you know, we <laughs> could. I Lyle Lovett once, and I, I mentioned that I was a relative of, of Lightning Hopkins, and he was like blown away. Yeah. Telling me about how Lightning influenced his, his playing. His music too. It's a huge influence. Oh, yeah. Anything else you want to share? I'm not going to keep you any longer and I appreciate your time. I appreciate your work. Are you working on anything else? Do you have anything planned for the future? I, I do. I, I, I sort of mentioned in passing that I'm, I'm starting research on my dad's side of the family. Yes. But because of my dad's apprehension to talk about anything and all of his siblings, including him, they're all gone. Now. Um, I can't really go back and, and, talk to the family member. So I'm having to start from scratch. And I, even though it's only three generations back, I finally found his paternal grandfather's name. I know a little more about his mother's side of the family, at least back to the 1850s or so. And mm-hmm. they were all still in Texas. Mm-hmm. But, and I knew his father's name, although I didn't know the spelling of it until recently, um, because his name was Samson and everybody was convinced that his name was supposed to be like Samson in the Bible, mm-hmm. S-A-M-S-O-N, but it was actually Samson, S-A-M-P-S-O-N. Hmm. And, and so it took me a while to, to verify that. And then I finally, just within the last two months probably, found out his father's name. His name was Penn Edwards, P-E-N-N, and he was also born in Texas in 1842. Mm-hmm. So that, that actually puts my family's roots two years earlier. Mm-hmm. Then on my mother's side, which was the side I wrote about in the, in the book, The Eyes of Texas. Now, so I, a couple of weeks ago, I drove to Warden, yes. Warden County, where, where they were from, and went to the county records like I'd done in Leon County. And I just didn't really find a whole lot of helpful information. And I just drove around town and I knew I looked up online and I saw there was an Edwards Road. Mm-hmm. And, and it was about a block long and it was on the proverbial wrong side of the tracks as you mentioned earlier it was literally on opposite side of the tracks if you weren't looking for it you wouldn't have found it because most of the warden was on one side and then you had to go past these warehouses and go on the other side of these shacks that probably had been there for a hundred years and hadn't been renovated or updated and some of them were leaning and falling down but I'm pretty sure that Edwards Road is connected to my family oh yeah yeah so, so I'm, I'm digging into that. Um, I knew Samson's mother's name. Oh, I was pretty sure his mother's name was Mary, but that's such a generic name. You're not going to find a whole lot of trails for that. Right. And, and I, I, I was able to find a little bit more about her too. So I'm looking forward to writing about my dad's side of the family, but the story won't be as optimistic as my mom's side. Yeah. Oh, it'll, it'll be optimistic, but it, it won't be as positive because it's, it was essentially, my dad's family was essentially a story of, Generational abuse. Oh. And my dad, um, broke that cycle. Good. And, and so I want to, I, I just want to focus on him and talk about how he got to that point and how me and my brother benefited from what he did. He wasn't very well educated, but he clearly understood that something had to change and he had to be the one to change it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that he had a pretty short life. He died at age fifty-three. Yeah, 
and I'm 55 now. So when I got to be 53, it was sort of playing all kinds of mind games because his dad also died at 53. Right, right. So I thought, all right, once I get past that age, I should be okay. But yeah. no, you never know what tomorrow holds. That's true. So, so I'm, I'm going to do research and I'll plan to write that story. The, the working title is Breaking the Curse. And I'm sure the title will be different by the time it comes out. But I'm hope I'm shooting for later this year, early next year for publication date. Well, great. I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, if you want to talk about that when it does come out, you're always welcome here. Um, as, as a, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, um, helping me through this. Like I said, I'm not, <laughs> I have zero experience. <laughs> doing interviews or talk that kind of thing. I'm really good with a set of notes. I've enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. I hope so. Anytime, anytime you want to talk about anything, you're welcome. I'm going to put in the show notes, how to get the book. I'm going to be a random drawing of my Patreon supporters. and I'm going to send a copy out to one of them, but uh, please people go check out Mr. Edwards. Um, do you want to share any contact information or the like like that? I could put in the show notes or do you want to share it here on the recording? Yeah. I would appreciate both. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So I, if people want to look me up on Twitter, I'm at Edwards21228. And then my email is also Edwards21228 at yahoo.com. And that's from when I lived in Maryland. That was a zip code at the time there. I just recently moved back to Texas, so I feel like I'm finally back home. But look me up on, on Twitter. I'm, I'm there every day. I generally send out a message first thing in the morning where um, I sent out a good morning to everybody except somebody who was a negative in the news the day before. Right. And I, I try to make that a, a, a humorous thing, but sometimes it can get kind of serious. I, I try not to make it too serious. And today for the um, event of Martin Luther King Day, I, I sent out a good morning to everybody. Yeah. I, I think we need more unity and we really do. more opportunities to look past our differences. I, I just, I am concerned that our differences are becoming our personalities. Very well said, and I'm afraid that's too true. We'll endeavor to persevere <laughs> and try to yes. get through this stormy time. And uh, as long as there's people like you out there that's willing to speak with reason and knowledge and, you know, have a discussion instead of a yelling argument or name calling, we, we're going to get through it as a, as a people, because that's what we do. We've gone through a lot of terrible things in the past and, as long as we keep trying to do be better than we used to be. I really do appreciate you talking to me, Melvin. Um, it's a great, you're a great writer. And I, and one of the highlights of my day is see what you, what you do in the morning. First thing on Twitter. <laughs> That's one of those things. Sometimes I sort of box myself in. I, I didn't plan to do that on a regular basis. I actually started it, um, to complain about the Texans. Mm-hmm. Coaching yeah. The first time I wrote it almost every day was about Bill O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, this, people are going to start unfollowing me because they're not Texans fans, or even if they are, nobody wants to hear somebody complain every day. Right. The same thing. So I, I thought I need to update it every day and make it a little bit creative and, and it's sort of taking all the life of its own. I think last year I had like 400 followers and now I'm getting close to 4,000. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's fun. I, for the most part, the people who follow me, an overwhelming majority are very reasonable. We have discussions on hot topics in reasonable ways. But when they retweet things and other people who are not following mm-hmm. join the conversation, that's when it gets a little fiery and, and, and out of control. And, and I wish there were a way we could 
do a little bit better there because essentially those people are the ones who are arguing with somebody they don't know. Right. They haven't, they haven't taken any time to get to know me. They don't know anything about my personality or, or my history. They just come on there as a flamethrower. One more thing. I'm going to let you go. Cause I know you don't feel good. Anything you're reading now that you would recommend? I'm looking forward. I just picked up a book called The Republic of Texas, and I'm looking forward to reading that. And it was sort of firsthand retelling of events that happened during the Republic of Texas days. Yeah. And and since my family was there, now I can prove it. And now uh, we'll soon have my certificate for the Sons of the Republic of Texas, where I'll basically be the king of the state. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm much more interested in even more of the details outside of my family. So that's a book I just got recently, and I'm looking forward to starting starting that soon. Do you remember the author of that one? Clarence Warden. Okay. W H A R T O N. I think I've seen that. I'm gonna have to look for that. I'm very, I'm really excited to those little the period like the Republic period. I think a lot of people think they know about what happened during the Republic era when Texas was its you know own nation. I think people think they know, but it's, I don't <laughs> think they do. You know, that's again where like TV and you know, just myth and stuff like that. It's got a little bit carried away. It was a rough period, you know. Yes. Yeah, it, it was. And most of the people who came here, the ones who came here on, on their own volition, um, were generally running away from something else. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So they, they were not the most upstanding members of society generally, but they sort of built this place, and, and I'm a part of it. And my family's history is weaved through, and I'm very proud of that. You should um, be. I'm, I'm not proud of how they got here, but no. they made the most of it once they did. I'm, yep. I'm really proud of them. And that's the that's the that's the beauty of the human spirit and you know perseverance, adaptability, surviving, getting getting ahead, doing better for for your hopefully especially for your next your children you know and the future yes. generations make things better. Well, I'm gonna let you go. Thank you again okay. so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it a lot. It has been great talking to you. Thank you for inviting me on your show today. Thank you for for your time. Uh, so that's gonna wrap it up, folks. You've been listening to me talk with Mr. Melvin Edwards and his great book, The Eyes of Texans. Thanks again to Melvin Edwards. And let's take a quick break to thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. And we'll be right back with some final thoughts and some additional news. I want to again thank Mr. Edwards for taking the time to join me on Texas History Lessons. And truth be told, I could have probably kept talking with him for at least another hour. But he was gracious enough with me to spend that time with me. He had not been well. So I definitely look forward to speaking with him again in the future. He's a great writer, deep thinker, and his book, The Eyes of Texans, From Slavery to the State Capitol, is a great book. It's a book of family stories that remain captivating throughout. And it's also an important book for the history of Texas. It's a perfect book for any Texas history teacher, Texas history students, and just for anybody interested in the history of Texas and of the United States in general. With an economy of words, Mr. Edwards packs in a lot of important historical events that his family lived through. It captures the humanity and lives of his family members while providing the context of the historical events at 
work around them from the time of the Republic of Texas to the modern day. It shares the hardships and struggles that they and others had to endure under slavery and the hardships and struggles they fought against in its aftermath from the time of Reconstruction to the Civil Rights era. It is honest about these true struggles, yet at the same time, there is a theme of hope, perseverance, and positivity in the face of adversity that runs throughout the book. It is the story of his family. It is a story like that of many families. It is the story of slavery, of freedmen, cowboys, sharecroppers, entrepreneurial spirits, and hardworking people seeking to provide better for their children and their grandchildren. It is, to sum it all up, the story of Texans. And I encourage all of you to get a copy, recommend it to others, and it also makes a great gift. And speaking of gifts, I mentioned in the interview that I would be doing a drawing and giving a copy to a Texas History Lessons Patreon supporter. So immediately after recording the interview, I sat down with my wife and we did a drawing. And the winner was a gentleman named Indy. So Indy will be receiving a copy of The Eyes of Texans very soon. Now, some long-time listeners might have noticed a change in the theme music. And I, I would have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but I didn't have it until then. I received some very special news after I got done recording with Mr. Edwards. So first, let's do some backstory. See how funny things work out. So back in July, and to be exact, it's July 21st. I was cutting hay, and while I was doing that, I was listening to some music. And I have a tendency, I like to like search out themes or songs. And I, I was jumping around on Spotify searching for Texas-related artists or songs about Texas. And I came across a song that I've played on the show before. Some Texas Town by an artist I'd never heard of. His name was Derek McClendon. And I loved that song. And as I cut my way around and around the hayfield, I listened to everything he had available. Some two to three times. And if you follow the podcast on Twitter, you would have known this because I tweeted about finding his music. That's something I do. I don't do a very good job about promoting the show or anything else. I just kind of, hey, I found this. This is really cool. But I was very impressed with his art. He had a couple of singles from 2019, Hey Anxiety and The Dance. In 2020, he released Texas Heart, Louisiana Soul. I loved every song on that. And in 2021, he'd released an EP called Who I Am. Again, every song strong and special and just so good. So as time advanced, I contacted him to see if he'd want to be one of the group of artists that I shared with, especially on the end of year episode last year in 2021, the recommendations episode. And just like I do with all the Texas History Lesson Spotlight artists, and he was happy to let me share his music. And in December, I had an idea, and I wasn't fully filled out, but I put a cry out into the Twitterverse that I was I was just interested in finding someone to record a, just a little acoustic intro theme song just to personalize the show a little bit more. And I had some responses from some nice people, and then a gentleman from the San Marcos area did a little shout out to Derek. And later on in the day, I get a message from Derek. Hey, you 
still wanting somebody to do the song. And this, let's just say, to say that I've been blessed is an understatement. The world works in really funny ways. And that little acoustic piece that I was imagining became this amazing instrumental by one of my favorite artists. And I never would have imagined that happening. He surpassed all of my expectations, and I am very grateful to be able to have his music as a permanent part of the podcast. And at the end of the episode, you're going to get to listen to it in its entirety. But let me add that in addition to all of his songs that are out now, and there's going to be a link in the show notes, Derek McClendon's going to be releasing a new nine-song album called Interstate Daydreamer on March the 5th. You can pre-order it on iTunes and Amazon on February 15th. So mark your calendars for that and help me show some love to this great kind artist that went out of his way to make this podcast a little bit better. And he did it for nothing more than he saw an opportunity to help me out and support me and my work with this show. Now, if you'd like to hear a little bit more and learn a little bit more, about and from Derek, then please go check out the January 28th, 2022 episode of Texas River Tonk. It's a radio show broadcasting live from the KZSM.org studio in downtown San Marcos every Friday from 12 to 2 p.m. And it just so happens that the host, who's a great guy, is the gentleman that had recommended that Derek take a look at maybe doing the theme song so thanks to him little victories you know it's it's amazing what happens sometimes now texas river tonk itself is a great radio show and it's like i said it's available after recording as a podcast and on the january 28th episode you'll get to listen to Derek play some songs and talk about all kinds of things you get to hear a lot of great songs by him as well as many from the sweet Rose of Texas, Mondo Salas and his band Rosemond, my man, and a new song by Lucas Jagno and the Roadshow, in addition to a lot of different, different variety of songs. And as an added bonus, near the end of the show, you get to hear Derek's wife Riley join him on a cover of Charlie Robinson's The Wedding Song. Like I said, it's near the end, and she took over the whole show. It, just listen just for that song between the two of them. It's a beautiful performance by both of them. Such a talented couple. So thank you, Derek McClendon, and thank you to all of the kind and supportive people that listen and that I found out there. Y'all are all appreciated. Now, one more thing. I understand that there might be some new listeners out there that might not be that familiar with Texas History Lessons podcast. In his appearance on Texas River Talk, Derek quotes something about Billy Joe Shaver or somebody had said about Billy Joe Shaver that said, and I can't remember the exact quote, but he basically said that his songs were telling stories everyone knows, but in a different way, from a different angle, a different perspective. And Derek identified with that in his own music, and it shows and in a big way, that's what Texas History Lessons is trying to do, too. It's a slow walk through the history of Texas. I'm looking back at stories I've learned throughout my entire life, the history of Texas, looking at the stories that everyone knows, or 
thinks they know. But my goal is to try to dig a little deeper and to find some different perspectives and angles to look at them, to revisit what I've learned and see if there's more to share. And with the lessons episodes that I've just started, looking into New Spain and the beginnings of what would become Texas someday, I think I'm finally started really doing that. So thanks to everybody for listening. And I'm looking forward to the future here. Thank you so much, Mr. Melvin E. Edwards. Such a wonderful and talented person, a kind person, and a great writer. Go read his book, The Eyes of Texans. You will enjoy it and benefit from the experience. And I look forward to speaking with him in the future. Thanks again to Derek McClendon for providing the theme song for the podcast. And by the way, he named it Walking Through History. So let's end the show with it. Thanks, everyone. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios.